wonderful, so peaceful. Do you know what a manger is? It's a food trough. And Luke tells us three times he was laid in a manger, in a food trough. Do you get the unlikeliness of that? They're coming to Bethlehem for the Savior of the world to be born, and they couldn't get a room. The place was full. They send him to the barn out back. Jesus was born in a barn. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a barn, a real working barn, but it's not a pretty place. It doesn't smell nice. I mean, I know that we worship in a barn, but if you've ever been in a, a real barn, it's not pretty. It's not flattering. So imagine this situation. Imagine Mary who has been told, you are going to give birth to the Savior of the world, arriving to find there is no place for them to go, to find themselves in a barn, in labor. Imagine being there. Now imagine for us, if you've ever given birth or known someone that has, imagine that you are going to Women's East to give birth, and you arrive there and you've made all of your preparations, you thought, and they say, unfortunately, Women's East is one of the popular places to give birth around here. It's fine. It's a wonderful place. Imagine you get there and they explain to you at the front, unfortunately, we don't have any rooms for you. But out back, we have a covered shed. Okay? You won't get wet. It won't rain on you. We do have the dumpster back there. But, you know, we can pull some chairs out there for you or something. You'll be fine out there. What would be our reaction? We would sue. Immediately. What? That's the kind of situation that they find themselves in. Luke tells us, shockingly, they come to Bethlehem and they couldn't get a room. They go to the barn. Jesus is born amongst animals and manure alone. One of the things that he tells us here is that Mary takes him and wraps him in cloths and lays him in the food trough. One of the things that that tells you here is that they were alone. What was customary in this day is to have a midwife. If you were given birth, you would have someone there who was experienced to help you give birth, who would take the child, wrap it, hand it back to you, much like what happens now. If you're at Women's East, you got 15 people in the room taking care of this. Mary was alone. She gave birth alone to the Savior of the world. She takes him herself and wraps him in cloths. We like to say, no crying he made, silent night. Oh, how peaceful it was in there. In the pictures, he's glowing, right? That's not in here. This situation would have felt all wrong. What's going on here? But the angel told me that this was the Savior of the world. That this was God showing up in flesh. What's going on? We're in a barn. I'm laying him in a food trough. No one else is here. No one bothered to show up. And finally, an unlikely birth announcement. So the King of Kings shows up. 
Who would you expect to show up and pay homage to Him? Who would you expect to come to hear about it first? Well, surely kings. Surely King Herod, the king of the Jews. Surely the religious leaders. Surely the people in the know. Surely the movers and the shakers would come. Surely God would tell them first. No. Luke spends so much time telling us, do you know who the greatest birth announcement comes to? It comes to the shepherds. The shepherds see something almost no one else in history has ever seen. Heaven opens up. They see the throne room. The angels come to them and say, let me tell you what has just happened. The Savior has come and He is for you. Go see Him. So Luke wants to know you how shocking it is that this comes to shepherds. So that doesn't mean a lot to us. We don't, I don't know if there's any shepherds in here. But in this day, shepherds had a very particular reputation. You see, among Jews, because the shepherds were always handling animals, always outside, they couldn't participate in the ceremonial law with God's people. They were seen as outcasts. They were also dirty. They also had this reputation for being thieves. And because of this reputation, their testimony was not acceptable in court. They couldn't even come present evidence in court. They weren't trusted. So who would God come to to bear witness to the world about the coming of Jesus? Oh yeah, the shepherds. He comes to the shepherds, shows them the glories of heaven, and He says, it's for you. The outsiders, the unlikely. And they go. They go with great joy. They respond with faith. They show up and they tell Mary and Joseph what they had seen. And from her response, you get the sense that the situation she found herself in didn't feel all that spiritual at all. We tend to think that she was just so filled with this awe of this glowing child she'd just given birth to, right? With the halo over its head. But you've got to realize, nine months before, she had a visitation from the angels to tell her this thing. But not much had changed since then. They had probably been ostracized from their families, their culture, everything. Here they find themselves in a barn, and the angels come to tell the news. We just saw heaven open. You know what they told us? This child that's laying in this food trough in this barn is the Savior of the world and the King of kings. And it says Mary pondered these things in her heart. In other words, she reflected on them with amazement. Wow! Maybe it is real. Maybe it is true. Nothing about this looks like it. I'm alone. Here we are in this Dirty place, the smell of manure, labor by myself. Maybe it's true. What you got to see about the situation is the irony, the total unlikeliness, the humility of everything God chose about this moment. So why? Why this radical inversion? Why this selection of the weak of the unexpected. Why would God do it this way? Frederick Beekner puts it this way. 
that I think helps us to get our hands around it. He says, those who believe in God can never, in a way, be sure of Him again. Once they have seen Him in a stable, they can never be sure where He will appear, or to what lengths He will go, or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation He will descend in His wild pursuit of man. And this means that we are not safe. That there is no place where we can hide from God. No place where we are safe from His power to break into and recreate the human heart. Because it is where He seems most helpless that He is most strong. And just where we least expect Him that He comes most fully. See, Beekner says, once you have seen the maker of the world show up in a stable, you can never be sure again what lengths He will go to in His unbelievably wild pursuit of man. Why did He show up here? Why this ludicrous self-humiliation of the maker of the world? It's His wild pursuit of you. He went all the way to the bottom that He might rescue you. That He might take your place. That He might take creation that has been broken by the curse and reverse it all from the bottom up. After you've seen Him in the stable, you never know where He's going to show up. You never know what situation that seems absolutely hopeless that He's going to show up right in the middle of it and bring redemption. You can never be sure again when you've seen Him in the stable. And this is God's way. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. He's got this question of, he says, this is basically how God is moving in everything that He does. He chooses the weak things to shame the strong. He chooses the foolish things to shame the wise. He chooses the weak things and the despised things and the lowly things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before Him. You want to know what God's up to in every single thing that He is at work in? It's in turning upside down the pride of man. Everywhere He is. He chooses the unexpected. He chooses the humble. The lowly, the despised, it's His way. That's how He does it. And you know who misses it? The proud in heart. Every single time. You know who gets it? The humble, the broken. This is His way. And nowhere do we see it more vividly than in the stable. So what does this mean? What does this ludicrous self-humiliation on the part of our king mean for us? What does Luke intend for us to do with this? How should we respond? I want to give you three basic ways that we can respond to the incarnation. Three basic things that it should do in us. The first, that it inverts your attitude. That's what it ought to do. The incarnation, as we see it and behold it and it penetrates our heart, it ought to invert our attitude. What do we mean by that? Well, what comes most natural to us as an attitude of heart is pride. 
Now, we tend to think that pride is only that bold arrogance that's visible to everyone, that bold arrogance that can't quit talking about themselves. That's certainly pride. But it is so much deeper than that. The essence of pride is self-reliance. The essence of pride is thinking about oneself. As C.S. Lewis says, humility is not just thinking less of yourself, not just thinking, I'm just a worm and beat myself up. Humility is thinking of yourself less. It's self-forgetfulness. And so pride is a total preoccupation with you. It's looking at everything through the lens of you. What is it all for me? How do I look? How can I get ahead? I'm dependent upon me. That is pride. And whenever we see in the Incarnation that the one who spoke everything into existence, the one who had enjoyed endless glory in heaven, left it aside, moved away from it to enter into our world and become a child. He limited himself to a baby, so vulnerable, so helpless, dependent on the breast of his mother. How unbelievable his self-humiliation. He did not come with all the pomp and circumstance that you would expect. No one even showed up. Herod, no idea. Caesar, as he's counting the number of his great empire that covered the earth, he had no idea and didn't even care. What incredible humiliation for you. Whenever you see that, laying himself aside, all of his glory and his wild pursuit of you, it inverts your attitude. You say, I can forget about myself. That's how I know him, through forgetting about myself and embracing him and what he's done. So first, it inverts our attitude. Secondly, it should change our movement. Here's the movement that's most natural to us. We move towards things that benefit us. We move towards things that improve us, that help us get ahead in some way. It's called upward mobility. And we can be very sneaky in how we do this. Always choosing those things that make us look good in some way. Even in our service, it can be about us. For instance, have you ever done anything really, really good and not told anybody? It's so hard. I mean, you just got to share it, right? It is so hard for us to not move towards things that are going to benefit us. What's natural movement for us is to move towards comfort, to move towards security, to move towards beauty. But in the incarnation, we see the opposite kind of movement. We see Him moving from the comforts, the security, the glory of heaven into the brokenness of our world. We see Him moving from glory and prestige into insignificance. We see Him moving into the brokenness and the violence and the curse of creation that He might reverse it. You know what it does whenever you see that kind of movement in our Savior? It changes your movement. Where you say, I can move towards brokenness for His sake. I can move towards what's ugly and broken in order to redeem it because that's His movement. And it now becomes my movement. 
The incarnation must change the kind of things we move towards. Brokenness. Need. Thirdly, the incarnation should reinterpret our circumstances. How loudly do our circumstances scream in our faces? They become the interpretive lens through which we determine everything. They define our theology. We look at our circumstances and we say, this tells me what God thinks of me. This tells me who I am. We look at our circumstances that often involve suffering and disappointment and the death of dreams. We look at our circumstances that so often involve broken bodies, deteriorating health, the loss of loved ones, difficult marriages, broken relationships, joblessness, hopelessness, things that you long to happen that keep not happening. We look at our circumstances and they define us. And we say, God is nowhere here. If He loved me, He would do this. I keep hoping and trusting He's going to do this for me, and He doesn't, and we harden our hearts. We interpret who He is and what He thinks about us through our circumstances. But look at the circumstances of the incarnation. What do you think Mary felt like there? Is she sitting in the stable... As she's giving birth to what she has been told would be the Savior of the world, and nobody is there. She's all alone. She's writhing in pain. There's no one there to help her. She can smell dung. What do you think she felt like? Whenever they were walking up, upon Bethlehem that night, she had been riding on a donkey for days. She's in labor. Joseph is going up to motel after motel six, trying to get a spot. No hospitals are open. No guest house are open. Rejection, rejection, rejection. There's a stable out back. What do you think her circumstances look like? Not very spiritual, right? But you see, it was right in the middle of the circumstances that looked like nothing that God was splitting time and space that He was changing everything, that He was coming into this world, was right in the middle of the most ordinary, unspiritual looking circumstance you can ever imagine. Whenever you see that, you say circumstances are not what they look like. Because we tend to think if it's spiritual, if God is in it, then it looks pretty and it all works perfectly. But what we see in the stable is it's just the opposite. He wants to move in the places that He seems most absent, that things look most helpless. As Beekner says, that is the place He comes and moves. So this morning, what is the incarnation doing in you? How's it affecting your attitude of heart? Is it inverting you? How's it moving you? What's it moving you towards? How are you interpreting your circumstances this morning? Because Christmas tends to stir up a lot of not-so-pleasant circumstances. How are you moving? How's it affecting you this morning? One of the things that Jesus said whenever He was getting ready to leave this planet, 
to his disciples. As he was getting ready to go up and sit on his throne and wait till he came back again, he was talking to his disciples. He says, I'm about to leave. But now, you're my body here. You're going to be my body here. You're going to be my incarnation. Me, I'm going to be up in heaven. I'm coming back. But until then, you're my incarnation. That's what he teaches us as the church together. We are his body. So easily that metaphor loses its significance for us. We are Jesus' physical presence on this earth. And the way that we respond to our circumstances, the way that we move, the kind of things that we move towards, the attitude of our hearts, well, it determines what kind of Jesus we're showing to the world. It defines what kind of presence He has in this world. We ought to expect that if He couldn't get a room whenever He came, we shouldn't be surprised at mistreatment in this world. Instead, we ought to embrace it to realize this is where He becomes most visible in us. Jesus says, you are His incarnation now. Would you be His presence? Would you be His presence, not individually, but together as we bear witness to the One who came into our world to invert everything. Let's pray together.